Well, I was going to preach a message on the life of uh, St. Patrick, but I guess uh, Nick has ruined that for me, so I'm going to have to do something on the fly. Uh, Just kidding. But actually, the message that God's given me really does tie into uh, how can a person go back to a place where they've been so mistreated and share and preach the gospel. It does speak to the topic today. Before I get into it, hey, I'm doing something new. I don't know if you saw my post on Twitter or Facebook, but if you want to follow along this message, I have put the notes uh, in the YouVersion app, and if you would like to go to your YouVersion app and follow along, all the verses are in there. If you've never done this before, just go to YouVersion, and then when you open it up, go to More. And when you get to more, go to events. And when that opens up, you'll see that there's two postings for North Central University Chapel. And I want you to go to the second one. I did a little test, uh, built a little presentation a couple days ago, and I can't get it off because it still says it's going live. But we're going on the second one. And if you'll open that up, it'll say NCU Chapel, February, uh, Friday, March 17th. And the title of the message today is Unforgiveness the most damaging choice. And so you can follow along. Hit save right away. And when you hit save right away, then you can add notes, uh, your own notes, and you can fill in the blanks where there are some empty gaps as we move through the message today. Colossians chapter 3, if you have your U version, it's right there. If you have your Bible, take it and turn to Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Father, we pray that your word would sink deep into our spirit and into our souls. All that we do here at North Central University and the academic training and the mentoring and the spiritual investment into these men and women is meant to send them out from this place where they can be biblical models of leadership, servanthood all around the world. And we pray for us to do that, we must understand the power of forgiveness that we've received and having received it, the power of forgiveness that we must now give to others. We pray for your help today in Jesus' name. Amen. Bondage is something that can destroy any person's life. And uh, we are very familiar with various kinds of bondage that has ruined people's lives, whether it be bondage to a chemical uh, that can ruin a person's health and it can ruin their minds. We know about the dangers of uh, the bondage to pornography. We know the dangers of of bondages to even just the misuse of our financial resources. There's all kinds of uh, bondage that can be very, very destructive in our lives. But there's a, a deeper kind of destruction that comes from the bondage of unforgiveness that is kind of silent and it does its work inside of us if it can get deep enough to create a spirit or a, uh, a seed of bitterness inside of us. The point that I want to make in this message today is that bitterness is a bondage that is guaranteed to ruin your life. And we have to understand that. Just as a person's body, when introduced enough times to a chemical, or your eyesight is introduced enough times to um, uh, an image that is unbiblical, impure, enough times being exposed to something that can create damage in our lives, it's not long and we can become addicted. We can become to the place where we crave that thing that we know that we shouldn't put into our bodies or put into our minds. And for too long, opportunities to 
uh, repent and to walk away sometimes become ignored, and all of a sudden our bodies, our minds, our spirits are now yearning and hungering for that which we have become held bondage to. And it creates a, uh, it creates a thicker and thicker wall in our spirit that keeps us from hearing God's voice and sensing the conviction of God in our lives and really experiencing what true freedom and true uh, healing and the ongoing transformation of our heart. So I could talk about a number of things as it relates to our, our spiritual heart, our emotional heart. Uh, our heart sometimes gets diseased by a number of different things, whether it be brokenness or an emptiness or uh, even a troubled heart. But the heart of bitterness is really most deadly, and we need to deal with it. Uh, bitterness can take its form uh, as a result of uh, our professions. I recently was reading the, uh, one of the books written by Timothy Keller in, entitled Counterfeit Gods, and he writes, and I'll just read just briefly, Henry and Kevin had both lost their jobs because of an unfair action by their bosses, and they came to see me for counseling within a year of each other. Henry forgave his boss and moved on and was doing very well, while Kevin could not move past it. He stayed bitter. He stayed cynical. He had affected his, his future career path. Some people tried to help him by working on his emotions. But the more sympathy that people showed Kevin, the more he seemed justified in his anger and the more he seemed to be filled with self-pity. And Keller goes on to talk about the fact that, that Kevin actually was pursuing a counterfeit God. And the counterfeit God was his financial security, that his job represented his God, financial security. And having lost that job for perhaps an unjust reason or an unfair reason, he just wasn't able to get over his unforgiveness. Uh, it happens uh, in our families, the opportunity to become bit embittered. How many families have had to suffer the loss of a loved one due to an unfortunate automobile accident or a disease that just pops up out of nowhere? How would you handle it if in your family you lost a parent or a, or a sister or a brother because of a drunk driver and how difficult it would be to forgive them? So it happens in our families. It also happens in our churches. Where in our churches, and maybe it's happened to you, where you feel like you've been lost through the cracks, your youth pastor uh, wasn't there for you when you were going through a crisis, and uh, you didn't get the attention that you really needed, and as a result, you became embittered because you were overlooked. And so, even in the church, when we're called to love each other and to make sure that everyone is cared for, it happens here at North Central. Can, you can be going and doing fine, but all of a sudden you have a difficulty, a crisis, a tragic accident, and, and there's nobody, seemingly nobody that's reaching out to you, and, it, and you become open to becoming offended, and that can lead to a place of bitterness. In our churches and even at our schools, we have lots of support groups to help people to overcome various kinds of things, whether it be a bondage to a chemical or an addiction to pornography or an addiction or a problem with anger. And we, we have groups like that, and, 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 and it takes a little bit of gumption, but we feel like we can get to the place where, okay, at least I can, I can admit that I've got a problem in this area, and I go to a support group, or I go to a group where I can get counseling, or I go to this Student Success Center, and I get someone to help me because I'm fine finally able to admit I've got a problem with whatever that may be. But I don't know if there's many people who, are, who have been able to admit that their problem is hatred or their problem is unforgiveness. Unforgivers Anonymous is a group that doesn't exist in the world today because of all things, to admit that you are a non-forgiver 
reflects on the faith that you say that you have. So rather than admitting that you're struggling to forgive, we just stuff it. And by stuffing it, that unforgiveness continues its deadly work inside of us. I want to say something about the deeper nature of bitterness, and it's this. The root of bitterness that goes deeper inside of us doing its damage, all it really needs to metastasize and go throughout our entire system, affecting all of our relationships and all of our moods and emotions, all it takes is time. Time. Time where we are choosing not to move forward and to do what we need to do to grant forgiveness, to get over bitterness. And that's what I want to address in this teaching today. I want to talk about the myths of forgiveness. I want to talk about the facts of forgiveness. I'd like to give you some actions for bitterness. And then I want to talk a little bit in closing about butter. And you're wondering, what's that all about? Well, that's why you need to stay alert, and we'll get to that at the end. There's three myths about forgiveness that we need to identify. Number one, the myth goes like this, that forgiveness is simply forgetting what a person did to me. If I'm able to forget it, if I can push it under the rug, and if I can just get to the place where it doesn't bother me anymore, then I'm able to feel or trick myself into believing that I have forgiven that person. The problem, though, is that for the most part, for me to be able to keep that thing from coming into my mind, I need to avoid you. Because every time I see you, though I have pushed it out of my mind, every time I see you, I'm reminded of that thing that I've forced myself to forget. If you have been able to forget something, it doesn't mean that you have offered forgiveness. Now, if you were to look back in 2 Samuel chapters 13 and 14, uh, we have the episode in David's life, and uh, 2 Samuel 13 is the horrific story uh, about David, in, in not so much about David, but uh, David had a wife, and, and out of that, that relationship, two children were uh, uh, procreated. We have Absalom and we have Tamar. They were brother and sister. And from another wife, uh, another son was born, and his name was Amnon. And Amnon became obsessed, out of control, sexual desires for his, his half-sister Tamar. And, and those desires allowed his lust to drive him to the place where he, he manufactured a scheme in which to rape her, and he did so. Absalom eventually took revenge, and he killed Amnon. And then because of what he did, he had to flee the home. And for three years, Absalom was away from his father and away from the family, and in that period of time, David is struggling with the strife that is in his family. He's broken about what has happened. He's grieving the loss of his son Amnon, and, and he's, he's bitter. He's angry because of what his son Absalom had, di had done. He mourns over the death, and, and finally, uh, finally, someone speaks to David prophetically, and it's in these words, 2 Samuel 14, 14, like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But God does not take away life. Instead, He devises ways so that a banished person may not remain estranged from Him. And David is listening to these words, and he knows exactly what the message is because he's been struggling with, what do I do with Absalom? I'm so mad. I'm so angry. But I know that he's my son. And he's in conflict. But he's fine that Absalom has exiled himself because out of sight, out of mind, and I don't want him back here. But he knows that that's not right. And this word comes to him, and he realizes, I need to bring him back. So verse 21 says this, David said to Joab, very well, I will do it. Go bring back the young man, Absalom. Notice he doesn't say, bring back my son, Absalom, but bring back the young man. 
It's an indication that David has not yet come to the place of being able to forgive. Uh, Though Absalom comes back home, forgiveness has not yet been granted. Look at verse 23. Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king said, he must go to his own house and he must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king or his father. And that lasted for another two years. Absalom unable to see his father. He wasn't forgiven. He was allowed to come back, but he's not been given forgiveness. And I, 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 in my heart, I'm, I'm thinking that this young man, Absalom, yeah, yes, he, 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 he did something wicked. Yes, he shouldn't have done what he did. Amnon shouldn't have done what he did. But how do we bring resolution to these crimes that we commit, these injustices that we perpetrate, these wicked things that we do? Forgiveness. I'd like to believe that Absalom, all he wants is the forgiveness of his father to be brought back into the family. But because he's been brought back, but he doesn't get to see the face of his father, he gets frustrated and he realizes that there's a plot of land next to a land that he owns and it's Joab's land and Joab has planted barley out there. And so I need to get Joab's attention and so he sends people out to put the barley field on fire. It's his way of saying, it's fine that someone says I'm forgiven, but I want to see my father. Now, Absalom indeed proves to be a wicked son. He proves to be power hungry in his own attempts to usurp his own father's throne. I wonder, could it be the result of having not been forgiven by a dad in which he so longed for? But the point so clearly made is that David did not restore the relationship with his son. Though he might have been able to forget it, he wasn't able to forgive. So it's a myth to say that just forgetting something that happened to you is an evidence of your forgiveness. That's a myth. Number two, the second myth is this. Forgiveness is being able to move on with my life. Something bad happened to me, but I've been able to move on with my life. Again, the issue of forgiveness is not necessarily that you are able to move on and do something with your life. That's not forgiveness. That's just your ability to cope with something and be able to continue on with your life. Forgiveness is is me giving something to someone who doesn't deserve what I'm about to give them. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is not just being able to cope so that I can move on, but in order to more successfully cope, I must forgive. And so the myth is, if you're able to move on, that must prove that you have forgiven. The third myth is this. Forgiveness is proven because I've become successful. I have become a successful person in my life because I've been able to forget, because I've been able to move on, And to be honest with you, you look at my life, I'm all put together. Look how the Lord has blessed me. How could it be that I have so much blessing in my life and yet still have unforgiveness in my heart? The successes of life, gang, can be more dangerous in our lives than the pain of life. For it's in the pain of life that we are hungry to repent and we are hungry to come before God. But in the successes of life, we can become numb to the small little foxes that are still ruining the vineyards of our spirit and our soul. So you might have all the success in the world. Someone offended you, someone hurt you, and you compare your life to their life and they are suffering and you are blessed. You are tempted to think, oh, I'm good, I've forgiven. No, it's just that you've learned to cope and you've been able to move on. So those are three myths. Let's move to three facts about forgiveness. The first fact about forgiveness is this. A forgiver forgets the sin, but not the sinner. I want you to notice what Jesus said when he was hanging on the cross, when he said, Father, forgive them. 
Now, he didn't say, Father, forgive what they're doing. He said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Jesus said to the adulterous woman, I don't condemn you. Now, was he against the, the, adult, the act of adultery? Sure, he was against that. In fact, he said, I want you to be forgiven and I don't want you to do that anymore. See, Jesus was able to separate the acts that are sinful from the sinner who needs to be loved. And this is the gospel, the gospel of grace, the entire meaning of the cross. It was God's way of making it, making it possible to separate us from our sins. Jesus himself nailed on the cross so that we wouldn't have to be nailed to the cross because of our sins, but that his sacrifice nailed our sins, not our bodies, to the cross. Look at Colossians 2.13. But you were dead in your sins and in the circumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it all away, nailing it to the cross. You need to see the separation there. Grace alive in my life because God made a way for me to be, to, for, for my sin to be judged, my sin to be condemned, my, my sin to be punished, while at the same time he took me into his arms and he loved me and he, and he, and he forgave me and he cleansed me and he set my feet upon a rock. It's this kind of love that changes me. It enables us, it empowers us such that we now can look at our enemy in the face and we can say, your actions, what you did to me hurt me. What you did to me was sinful, but I forgive you. I don't know of any other person who has exhibited this ability to forgive to that level than the woman, Corey Ten Boom. The late Corey Ten Boom was a survivor of World War II, Nazi Holocaust, and um, her whole family was gathered up and taken to a concentration camp. Corey survived, but all of her family were killed. In her later years, she began writing, and she began writing about forgiveness, and she began writing about the meaning of life. And she wrote about forgiveness. And in one of her books, she tells this story. She was in Munich, Germany, and she was speaking on forgiveness. And after she had finished her message, she writes this. After my message, I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment in the present, I saw his brown overcoat. And then the next moment, from years past, I saw his blue uniform and his visor cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back to me in a rush. The memory of that huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of having to walk past this man naked. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parched skin. Betsy, how thin you have become. The place was Ravensbrook, and the man who was making his way forward toward me had been a guard, one of the most cruel guards. And now he was in front of me, and his hand was thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, I fumbled with my pocketbook rather than taking his hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among thousands? But I remembered him. 
the leather crop swinging from his belt, I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he, he didn't remember me. But he went on saying, since that time, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there, but I need to hear from your lips as well, Fraulein. Will you forgive me? Corey Tenboom says, I stood there. I, whose sins had again and again been forgiven, and I couldn't forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by asking? Could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew it. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who injure us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive yours. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but I had come to know it as a daily experience. For since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for victims of the Nazi brutality. And I had found that there were those, those who were able to forgive their former enemies were also able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter their physical scars. But those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and horrible as that. So I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperatures of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. And I'll trust you to supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one that stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. And I cried, I forgive you, brother, with all of my heart. And for the long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did that moment. But even so, I realized it was not my love. I had tried my love, but I did not have the power. I realized it truly was the power of God's love. The second fact that we need to realize about forgiveness is that forgiveness, truly expressed to an offender, is that it, it sets them free to move on with their life. R.T. Kendall has written a book called Total Forgiveness, and he says it this way. Forgiveness is letting the offender off the hook. Letting the offender off the hook. As hard as it may be, that's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is me saying to you, I let you off the hook. I want your life to be blessed. I want God to do what's good in your life, and I don't want you to suffer the judgment of God's wrath because, you, because of what you've done to me. But my prayer is that my forgiveness will help you off the hook so that you can be transformed. And that leads to the third fact, and that is a forgiver rejoices in the success of their offender. Go back to your Old Testament. You find the, that Esau 
offered love to his brother Jacob. It's a beautiful picture in Genesis 33, verse 4. I mean, there's hugs and there's tears. Even though years before, Jacob had swindled his brother Esau out of the family inheritance. And there's Esau, ready to hug, ready to hold, ready to say, I love you, my brother. A forgiver rejoices in the success of their offender. So let's, let me give you three acts on how do we apply this. How do we reject bitterness and choose forgiveness quickly? Number one, we have to be able to accept God's peace when someone doesn't apologize. When someone does not seek forgiveness, we still have to offer that which we know is ours to offer. Luke chapter 23, verses 35 through 39 is a description of all the insults and all the mockery and all the mistreatment that Jesus is receiving as he's hanging on the cross. And it comes on the heels of what he says in verse 34 when he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He says in their hearing, Father, forgive them. And their reaction is to mistreat him even more so. True forgiveness is given when we accept God's peace, even when people are not asking to be forgiven of us. Number two, we choose forgiveness rather than bitterness by acknowledging God's patience for those who have yet to apologize. What does 2 Peter 3 tell us? Tells us this, that do not forget this, dear friends, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord's not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. And we say, God, I'm struggling to forgive. It's hard. I'm so hurt. I'm so wounded. But Jesus, I'm reminded that you also were hurt. And you also were wounded. And you were and you still are patient. And so, Lord, I want to be like you. I want to be patient with my offenders who've not yet come to ask forgiveness. I want to have that patience waiting and praying for them. I want to be like the writer of Hebrews who tells us in chapter 12, verse 3, to consider Jesus who endured such opposition from sinful men so that we do not grow weary and lose heart. The third thing we do to reject bitterness and to accept forgiveness is to acquire God's promptness for what we need to apologize for. Jesus tells us that if we come to the altar to bring our offering and we know that we have some sin against a brother, we need to go to that brother, that sister, and we need to make it right. And he says, settle matters quickly with your adversary. <clears throat> the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 and 31, do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption, but get rid of all bitterness. I close with this. How do we respond when we are deeply hurt in such a way that bitterness melts like butter? Number one, we remember that all my offenses have been forgiven. And we remember all of my offenses have been forgiven. The parable of the debtors, the two debtors is powerful, where one man is forgiven like a million dollars, and yet he turns around and cannot forgive another person of a hundred dollars. And he's brought before his master. And the master says, shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I was merciful to you? And when we find ourselves embittered by an offense that's been committed to us, we remember of all that we have been forgiven of by God and by others. Bitterness turns to butter, number two, when we rebuke the one who's behind all offenses. Your enemy is not your enemy. Your enemy is the devil who is the father of all lies. 
And when you are convincing yourself that you have a right to be bitter and you have a right to get revenge and you have a right to be frustrated and you have a right to wait until they apologize, you're listening to a liar. That our enemy is not our enemy. Our enemy is Satan himself. And then the third way in which bitterness melts like butter is when we rejoice along our brother or our sister who has hurt us. Paul tells Timothy, I want people everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger and without disputing. I came across this very interesting story about Leonardo da Vinci. When he was painting the masterpiece, The Last Supper, you might wonder, which of the disciples, which of the people on the canvas, which faces did he start with first? And which face did he save until last? Well, he saved the picture, the face of Jesus until last because it would be his masterpiece in that entire portrait. And as he was thinking about how shall I paint the face of Judas, when it was the time to paint the face of Judas, it was on the heels of a recent conflict that he had had with an enemy of his who had said some harsh words about him and made him publicly humiliated. And so da Vinci said to himself, I am going to paint that guy's face on this canvas for Judas. And that's exactly what he did. He thought of that person that so embittered him and he remembered all of the facial features and he put that on the canvas because to him, his enemy reflected all of the evil that Judas represented. And it felt good because he knew that in the end, this portrait, everybody would know whose picture Judas was. When the painting was almost complete and he was getting to the final face to portray, the face of Jesus, he began thinking about all of the love of God, the love and the mercy of Jesus, and how, he, how could he put on canvas? He, his desire was to put all the godly characteristics of Jesus on the canvas in his face, and he experienced what you might call painter's block. It, it, it just wasn't happening. He, he wasn't able to take what he knew for fact, the character of Christ, and get it on the canvas until it dawned on him. The reason he was not able to portray the beauty of Christ is because he had been embroiled with bitterness. And it was as though the Holy Spirit said, you need to make a correction with Judas. And that's exactly what he did. That face, go back to one of those screens, if you would. That is not the picture of the man that offended da Vinci. See, what da Vinci did is he went and he scrubbed it all out and he repainted it with a generic face. He realized that bitterness had actually hindered his ability to bring a reflection to the beauty and the glory of Christ. That's what bitterness does to us, gang. As much as we have talent and as much as we have education and as much as we have finance and as much as we might have this, that, and everything else that would point to success, if we're ruled with bitterness, we have a limited ability to truly reflect the beauty of Jesus. So as we prepare today to go to prayer and to have communion, perhaps this also might be in the next hour an opportunity for you to gather with some people and to pray and maybe ask forgiveness or maybe give forgiveness, but to truly say, God, I want to reflect you in all of your beauty, but I know there's something hindering me because I'm struggling. And the, and the person that you need to forgive might not even be here. And the person that you need to forgive might not even be alive anymore. But the person that you need to forgive 
is the person, is the situation that's keeping you from truly, more deeply, being that reflection of Christ to the world in which you desire to do and be. So let's stand to our feet. Father, thank you for the power that you give us to forgive. Thank you, Lord, for the power that you give to us to be reminded of all that we've been forgiven of. That we truly don't have to forgive anyone in a deeper way than what you have had to forgive us. Lack of our forgiveness would qualify us for eternal damnation. But we received your grace and your mercy and you transformed us and we become ambassadors of your love and of your forgiveness to others. And as hard as it may be, help us. In our expression of forgiveness, it might feel as though there's very little feeling, there's very little emotion, but God, you've called us by the act of our will to say those words, to offer that love. And we trust, Lord, that in so doing, we become whole. Relationships are restored. And the glory of Christ is revealed. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to go to prayer for the next hour. If any of you are, I see we might have some guests with us. We are so glad that you're here. And uh, feel free if you'd like to stay for prayer. But uh, we've got communion over here. Dr. Lon Flippo will be serving communion. We've got others that are ready to pray, anoint you with oil. And uh, let's, let's seek the Lord and let's walk in that grace of forgiveness as we've received it.